Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. This is episode 164 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser, and my co-host, Andrew Frankel. Now, this week, we're talking about our favorite ever road car engines. Um, there's some spectacular stuff in here. Uh, and actually, we're talking about our favourite engines rather than, I don't know, the greatest engines um, because we wanted this to be sort of our personal lists um, and we wanted to share our own experiences with some of these engines. Um, so I hope you enjoy listening. Before we get started, though, um, please just remember, whichever podcast app you're using, just hit the follow button or hit the subscribe button um, it means you never miss an episode and it really, really helps us, actually helps us to find a bigger podcast audience. So please do that and enjoy the episode. Andrew, to get things started, I wonder if 1LR-GUE means anything to you. It sounds like a car registration plate or something, doesn't it? But it's not. Is it the engine code for a japanese v10 <laughs> well it is well done oh impressed there i thought you'd have no idea um, um built by yamaha indeed it is it is yeah very well done it's a 4.8 liter v10 um i'll go through the specs in a moment but it is the engine from the lexus lfa um which i drove for the very first time yesterday um now, as we're talking our favourite road car engines of all time, I mean, that has to be in there. And I, is it on your list as well? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, I think, I think a... Clarkson says it's the best engine that there's ever been. And I don't know how you measure that. Um, it can yeah. only ever be a subjective view, can't it? But it's absolutely up there. I mean, it's a... Oh, yeah, when I think of what I want an engine to be, how I want it to sound, how I want it to respond, mm. you know, that's the engine, isn't it? It is. That's absolutely mighty. But why they called it 1LR-GUE. I have clue. Anyway, uh, so it's, yeah, I, so I drove um, an LFA for the first time yesterday. I'll be writing about it uh, for the TI Appen website very, very soon. Um, and we, we were on the south coast on a brilliant coast road that overlooks Chesil Beach. Um, never been there before, but it's a fantastic spot. We had great weather. Um, hopefully the images will come out beautifully. I suspect they will do. But that car is an experience. Um, yeah. And it's, of course, it's, it's an experience dominated by the engine. Um, let me just run through some of the specifications because it is a special thing. So it's aluminium alloy, magnesium alloy, and titanium alloy. Those are the sort of three main materials. It's a compact engine. Um, Toyota say, or Lexus say, it's more compact than, most, than a typical V8. Yeah. Um, and it was co-developed with Yamaha. Interestingly, the exhaust system had input from Yamaha's music division, which sort of makes sense, doesn't it, when you hear the thing? Oh, the people who make the pianos. Exactly. Um, yeah. So they well, understand. When you hear it. When you hear it sonics. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's an extraordinary sound. Um, it revs like a mad thing. 
um, the the sort of apocryphal tale, maybe it is true, um, was that it revs from nothing to the red line in 0.6 of a second. And so a mechanical tachometer couldn't keep up, so they had to use a digital one. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, but it's a nice little tale, isn't it? Um, if you blend it, I mean, you can believe it. It feels like it hasn't got a flywheel at all, doesn't it? Yeah. It's just yeah, the it's response so free-spinning. Yeah, just lights up. Um, forged aluminium pistons, uh, forged titanium con rods, uh, dry sump, so it sits low in the, in the chassis, 10 individual throttle bodies, so that helps with that lightning response. They say it's as light, or I think lighter actually, than Toyota's own 3.5-litre V6, so it's a that is a special engine, and when you look at the spec sheet, they went to town with that thing. They yeah. did everything they could to produce an engine of lightning responses with a wonderful soundtrack, and it's just worth the effort, isn't it? It's quite an old engine now, isn't it? I mean, what, what year was the car you drove? Um, so it was uh, 2011, I believe. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, like a 12 year old engine now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which means that you know, there's been a long time, hasn't there, for you know, for stuff to come along, and you know, we will clearly talk about engines, which, for their, you know, for their sense of occasion uh, and everything else, you know, probably rival it. Um, but it's got what five five fifty horsepower from a four point eight something. Yeah, like that? five five three. So it's one hundred and fifteen bhp per liter, which yeah. is massively high for an NA engine, isn't it? Massively yeah. high. Yeah. Although. And maybe we'll talk about this engine in a minute. I don't think it's any higher than you get in a Honda S2000. Interesting. So that's 230-something that out of a two-litre engine. It's about yeah. the same, isn't it? That is, yeah, that, that is identical, isn't it? That is identical. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So, do you know what? I think there's going to be a bit of a running theme with the engines I nominate here. Because... <laughs> Are I they just... all going to be redlined beyond 8,000? <laughs> exactly. I don't, but that's... Isn't that one of the key traits of a truly exciting engine that it revs well, on? Well, I, I think... I don't think it has to be. I've got engines no. on my list which mm. would blow themselves to smithereens long before <laughs> uh, they got anywhere near those sorts of things. Uh, these are engines which are great, um, either because maybe they're technically clever in some way or because they're so unbelievably characterful. Mm. Or because I've got one engine on my list, which is, I wonder if you can tell me what it is. This engine powered everything from Le Mans winners to a hearse. Or lots of hearses. Ooh. Oh, no, you're going to have to tell me. Literally everything. They transported royalty. They made amazing sports cars out of it. Amazing limousines XK? out of it. XK. Mm. Amazing mm. racing cars out of it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Now they go pop at about six and a bit. Um, yeah. But oh my goodness! And what a life from the late forties to the uh, mid eighties. Mm. I mean, absolutely extraordinary engine. Can um, you tell us the story of that engine, then, please? Well, uh, it first came into being, it first went into production straight after the war, so forty eight, forty nine, in the XK one twenty. This was the first engine to go into something which called itself a jaguar i mean ss cars um which were producing cars before the wars they had jaguar as a model name but obviously Mm. ss after the war had some somewhat unfortunate connotations um so they changed and and jaguar is a better better name anyway isn't it jaguar is much better jaguar is just jaguar is just a better name um and yeah and they came up with this i mean it started life as a 3.4 um, in its time, it went as small as, I think they did a 2.4 uh, in an XJ6. These days, I think uh, Henry Pierman of Eagle E-Types can get them out to about 4.7. Um, <laughs> wow. you know, back then, it would have had about 140 horsepower when it was new. Uh, these days, a proper wide-angle, fuel-injected, alloy block um, race engine will probably produce 400 horsepower. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. Um, the, yeah, the, I mean, and, and, and it was designed, it was so good, get this, it was designed as a road car engine. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's why it's, you know, it's got quite a long stroke, quite a narrow bore. It wasn't designed to go racing. And they were going to do this whole other engine, this V12 engine, which eventually did kind of appear, you know, years and years later in the XJ13, which was going to be their race engine. 
But this, you know, they stuck this engine in the competition version of the X-Q120, which they call the C-Type, and it just started winning Le Mans and doing this. And they just thought, well, there's just no need. We'll just use this instead. Mm. So it was an engine which won Le Mans five times in the 1950s, which was never designed to be a racing engine. That is amazing, isn't it? It was yeah. just that good. It was just that yeah. good. It was just that good. So that's, um, yeah, that's definitely high up my list. Um, so you've mentioned the Honda S2000. That's not on mm. my list, but I have got a little four-cylinder Honda VTEC. Because it has to be there, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, um, well, I mean, to me, I mean, I mean, I'm kind of calling them, I'm putting them all under the same umbrella, yeah. whether it's a, <coughs> excuse me, a 1.6 or a 2-litre or anything in between. So I'm looking at the B18C5. Oh, the, <laughs> yes, the old B18C5. <laughs> These engine codes no are so idea. boring, aren't they? They're so I have no idea. I've no idea which Civic that ended up in. No. Well, that was the Integra Type R, actually, the DC2. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, so this is the, the 1.8 litre. Um, and actually, it's on my list because it demonstrates that thrilling, exotic engines needn't be V10s or V12s. No. They, they just no. don't have to be. They can be little four-cylinders in affordable cars. Yes, um, but they need two things. One is they need to have incredible engineers behind them and secondly yeah. as is absolutely the case with VTEC they just need to be really bloody clever mm. and VTEC is mm. you know Andrew English did a story um, which is out on the website and the app at the moment um, explaining about VTEC because he's just bought uh, one of the last I think Civic Type R's to use a version of that engine yeah. and it is so the way it works is so simple and so clever so basically what you have is you have um an engine that's sort of running away and it gets up to about five and a half thousand um, revs at which stage hydraulic pressure forces a pin through the camshaft which engages a whole other set of different cams mm. which are much sharper and so they're much higher lift and I think longer duration too and so basically it's like you've just bolted a completely different cylinder head to the car mm. and suddenly and, and, and you, you will remember it you know it goes along and it's not there's nothing sort of progressive about it suddenly the engine note sharpens go very hard mm. and then the revs just go flying off around the clock mm. and it was a switch. You know, just uh, it's just like a switch and you know also because they were honda and they love this stuff and they understand it and they're clever they always fitted because i mean these vtex systems tended not to come until about five and a half thousand and then they were with you until just after they usually the red line was somewhere just the other side of eight but they always fitted these cars with transmissions amazingly quick and swift transmissions but with ratios Mm. that would allow you to yeah. keep the VTEC active all the time. Mm. So you'd never fall back below that level where that pin moved and the mm. proper cam profiles came in. Um, and so you could always keep them on the bottom. I completely agree with you. It was just such a, you know, one of those howling around a truck. I remember taking an Integra Type R around Goodwood and just having the most fun in it. And okay, it's a beautiful mm. handling car too, but that engine was unbelievable. And I think Andrew English told me, I think they said they've never had a claim on one. Yeah, They're basically indestructible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is extraordinary. They are phenomenal yes. things. And um, do you know, on the gear ratio point, the one car that I've come across with a Honda VTEC engine that didn't feel quite right was an Accord Type R. And okay. you had to hit the limiter, shift really quickly, yeah. um, upshift really quickly to stay within the VTEC zone. If you shifted slightly early or you were a bit tardy with your shift, you'd drop off the, the cam and then you'd have to labour back up to it, and it would light up again. Um, but you're right, in, in most Hondas, the ratios are just perfect that you can stay on that hotter cam, and yeah. then it's just fantastically exciting. A really sort of hard-edged barking sound, really dramatic, exciting power delivery at the, at the top end. It was fantastic. And this was... What I love about those engines is that it wouldn't happen these days, because it would be far easier and far cheaper just to put a turbo on it. Yeah. And you'd get decent response, yeah. you'd get a load of torque, good power, but you'd have nothing like the character. Um, but back then, it was worth the effort. It was worth engineering yeah. these engines. But also, um, if you did it, if you did it now, I mean, you, you might sell a small number of hot hatches, but people wouldn't, people would just, wouldn't, you know, people wouldn't want a, no. you know, a little engine with no torque. I mean, these things, you know, mm. they develop peak torque at about 7,000 revs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know... The world's moved on, and you know, and, and and all they are far less characterful. You know, a modern turbo engine with you know a wall of torque from you know eighteen hundred RPM is just a more 
more usable thing. Mm. It's a shame, really. In um, in that piece that you spoke about by Andrew English, he talks about um, for a long, long time, Honda engines were all about revs. That's how they made their power, wasn't it? They just yeah. they revved high. And let's not forget that Honda, when it was um, participating in Formula One, particularly in the eighties and nineties, as an engine supplier, it won many Formula One World Championships. Eleven actually during the eighties and nineties. Six in the constructors, five in the teams, uh, in the drivers, yeah. excuse me. Um, V12s, V10s, also turbo V6s. So they really learned during that period how to make an engine rev high reliably. Yeah. And there really is filter, you know, that, that, that know-how, that engineering expertise really did filter down from those Formula 1 engines into the road car engines. And that, that connection is just super cool. I love, I love that. It makes them so special. I, I, it does, and I think it, I think it feels special because there is actually there is no secret to it. To make an engine like that little four-cylinder VTEC engine rev that high, produce that much power, and that this, I mean that itself is not very difficult to do if you don't mind having an engine which is going to go bang after yeah. twenty-five thousand miles. Yeah. But to do it in an engine which will just go and go and go and go and go. Um, for you know, likely the lifetime of the car, you only do that just through exquisite engineering, just mm. total attention to quality, um, mm. and and that's what I really love about it. Is you know, you drive one of those cars, and okay, it's a, yeah, it's a little Japanese hatchback, but you just know that it has some of the finest engineering in it, yeah. and some of the un- finest engineering brains behind it that have ever designed anything that's gone on a car. Yeah, and the right materials, they yep. really they they gave it everything, didn't they? Because um, they cared. Which is, they really, really cared. And actually, just final point on the Integra Type I engine, the DC2 model. Yeah, it made 131 pounds foot at 7,300 RPM. Um, <laughs> so it is this, you would just get dropped by a modern turbo diesel Golf, wouldn't you? Oh, um, Golf. If you weren't in the yeah. right gear. Yeah. But, Go gosh, they are exciting. They really are okay. exciting. Can we, we, got can, we de- can, yeah, well, can we deal with the obvious one? McLaren F1. Well, no, I wasn't going to say that. No, even more okay. obvious than that. Oh, go on. You tend to find them in the back of cars, and they've got six yeah. cylinders. Are we talking um, Mezger engine? Uh, we are talking Mezger engines. Yeah. What is it about that engine? What it's like, is it to anybody going, huh, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you, you could apply it to all air-cooled um, Porsche 911 engines because you had a hand in all of them, but particularly um, the sort of the race engine that ended up in the road cars. Um, which, I mean, I just find it amazing that I, I'm, it's not quite true that no one else has do, ever done a flat six. Subaru did one. I think Tucker did one in the 1950s. Yeah. But uh, the flat six engine, uh, maybe it's just the way that Porsche do them. Um, I don't know. But it is so, it is such a fabulous power unit. The way mm. it delivers its power, the noise that it makes, the fact that it keeps you center of gravity of the car right down on the deck i mean it's just to me it is it's it's still quite compact it seems to me to be such an optimal configuration and i think what happened is that porsche made such a name for themselves by doing it everybody else just thought well that's theirs we can't go there Mm. um Mm. and do you know what you you sometimes feel shortchanged with a v6 because it's not a v8 or a 10 or a 12 but you never think with a flat six god i wish i had a couple more cylinders here never Never, that, isn't it? I mm. mean, they, they, they are so smooth. Mm. And that, what does that Metzger engine rev to? 9,000? Best part of? Um, and, and you get there, and instead of thinking, oh my God, this thing's going to blow up. You, mm. you think, well, why isn't it doing 10 or 11? Because it just wants to go and go and go. Mm. And again, another engine, which is... I can remember talking to... Um, to the guys at Porsche because I mean they kept that engine on it was quite an old engine by the time they stopped using it so why do you keep on using this engine and they said because we know it you know this is an engine that can survive 24 hours at Le Mans standing on its head and so you know (laughs) we know what it can do we know it won't let us down at all it'll be absolutely bomb proof and you know tell me what's wrong with it and of course the answer is absolutely nothing Mm. but it couldn't live forever and it was replaced for the 991 wasn't it with the <clears throat> the new um, first 3.8 litre and then later 4 litre, a new flat six. Yeah. Um, and I wonder which one you prefer because 
Honestly, you drive a GT3 or a GT3 RS now with the newer engine. Um, they're all four liters now, aren't they? And it's, it's a phenomenal engine, that one. It's a phenomenal engine. And I wonder uh, if people really do miss the, the old Metzger one from the 997 and 996. I think, I think it's a very good question. I think there, there, there probably is an element of, you know, rose tinted spectacles about, about these things. Um, you know, the modern engine, you know, it delivers a heap more power. It revs just as high. Um, it sounds bonkers. I mean, mm. uh, I was, um, when I went over to America to drive that, um, an old Bentley, um, I happened to spend some time in a GT4 RS Cayman. Mm. Um, I mean, the cabin noise in that car is, I mean, you know, on the right road, it is utterly inspirational. I mean, I wouldn't want to do a massive distance in it, if I'm honest. Um, mm. But yeah, so, I mean, is, is it a better engine than the Mexico engine? I think mostly, I, I guess it's because the Mexico engine has this more historic component because it was yeah. in the back of the GT198, which won the more outright yeah. um, in 1998. Um, so it has that sort of pedigree. Uh, and even though the current engine has won its class at the more multiple times in the back of a, I said in the back, in the middle of an RSR, um, it's, it, to me, it hasn't quite got that history to it. Uh, but objectively, if any way you look at it, yeah, it's absolutely as good, probably better than the Metzger engine. Mm. But that's progress. Yeah, they're phenomenal engines, both of them. Um, <clears throat> while we're on the subject of Porsche, do we just have to tick off the Carrera GT V10? Um, I've only driven one of those cars very briefly, but you just sort of have to hear it howling to fall for that engine, don't you? You do, but I mean, I, I just thought the problem with doing a podcast like this with great engines is, you know, you could do a, a pod series on great engines. You know, mm. you, you and I could do an entire podcast on that engine alone. And I, I, I've been sitting there trying to, and I think to myself, when I think about sort of V10s, I think to myself, well, obviously there's the there's the LFA V10, which yep. I would um, quite like to talk about. There's the the BMW V10, yep. which I know had its issues, but oh my goodness. Um, there's the Viper V10, um, <laughs> and you know, and, and and so it goes on. And the, the Audi V10, Audi, Lamborghini, and, you know, and, yeah. Lamborghini, um, and 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 so you, you kind of think you think I start thinking of it. I'm going to have to start rationing these engines a bit. So maybe I could only have a couple of V10s in it. And if I could only have a couple of V10s, I'd have the Lexus in, in my list. I'd have the Lexus and the BMW engine because the BMW yeah. engine, um, it was such a bonkers engine to put in a five series. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. And actually, when you look at again, when you look at the specs, that's such a high, highly specified engine with individual throttle bodies, the materials they used. Um, again, they went to town with that thing. And as we know, in later ones, later M5s, well, you just get a, put a V8 in it with a couple of turbos, and away you go. Exactly. And you know, you get way more power. You get way more torque. You get a, but objectively, you get a far better engine. It has more mm. performance, more power. It probably uses, probably, I'm sure it uses less fuel. Just better in every way. But it just isn't exactly. the same, is it? <laughs> and actually, same. a V10, a really um, fast spinning uh, V10 with not much torque low down, is an absolutely rubbish engine to have in a big saloon or a big mm. estate. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> You know, it's the same criticism that I have um, aimed at the Ferrari Pura Sangue, because love Ferrari's V12, though I absolutely do. Um, it's just not the right engine to have in a car like that. Mm. Um, but there is something so gloriously incongruous and nutty about having an engine, which really genuinely does sound like it should be in a racing car, in a 5 Series estate. Completely agree. Um can I give you one of mine that proves that I'm not all about 9,000 RPM redlines? Go on. Um, although this one revs quite well. It's the 6.2 litre AMG V8, but specifically the one in the SLS Black series. Yeah. That thing is phenomenal because it's a big displacement engine, 6.2 litres. So it's not like some of the other V10s we're talking about where you have to ring it out. Um, it's got massive torque and it just in the mid range it almost feels turbocharged it's that strong you get that big rush that hit of torque and the thing just takes off and the noise and the noise um, that rumbling soundtrack yeah a a gorgeous sound but it it actually does rev that thing as well so it's not like a bit of Detroit iron that's done at six you know I think it goes probably beyond seven that thing Um, 
and particularly in that car, the SLS Black Series, a low, um, very sporting car, it is unbelievable. It it totally it dominates the driving experience in that thing, um, and it it makes it one of the most exciting road cars I've ever come across. I I adore and, that and, motor, and I think there's a reason why it's as good as it is, because it was an engine that AMG did for itself. It wasn't a tuned-up mm. version of something which you got in other Mercedes. It was mm. the first engine where they just said, okay, this is, this, this is our engine. Yeah. And it was done entirely by AMG for AMG. And I think it's a calling card. I think they were just saying, okay, guys, this is what we can do. Mm. Um, and I think that's why it was that good. I have to say, the engine that preceded it, um, you will have been around to drive the supercharged 5.5-litre V8 yeah. that was in basically everything from mm. you know from an e-class to an slr mm. that was a characterful engine yeah i mean the, SL, the the slr was a very very flawed car but my goodness the engine in it yeah. actually the biggest problem with that engine and indeed most of the cars that it went into was that it had so much torque um you know they had to tie it to that you know shunk, shunky old slushy mm. five-speed auto gearbox which kind of ruined it but the engine mm. itself was was a marvel so um, there we go we, there the, is it's the only supercharged engine I've got on my list. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. And I wonder if you've got any turbo engines on your list. I bet I do. I bet I do. I haven't even thought about it like that. Have I got any turbo? Yes, I do. There you go. Oh, well done. I Is do. it in the middle of an F40? Uh, do you know what? If I thought of it, it would have been. Um, <laughs> but, but, but it's not. Uh, <coughs> oh, God, how did I manage to miss that? No, this one is in the front of a Rolls-Royce, more recently and more often a Bentley. It's the six and three quarter litre. Oh, um, yeah. I, about, uh, some friends came to stay recently. Um, he's done quite well for himself. So he turned up in his Mulsanne. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um, as you know, um, the last couple of hundred yards getting to my house mm. is not the easiest bit of terrain to negotiate if you're in anything, let alone a, a Mulsanne. So when people come here, be they, you know, sort of delivery drivers or mates or whatever in big, big cars, I always just go and meet them. Uh, and then I just drive it in myself because I know where all the lumps and bumps are. So anyway, the long of the short of this, I drove this small Sam. I probably drove it about 300 yards. But even then, I probably did do more than 20 miles an hour in it. Even then, just to hear that, that woofle, that sort mm. of, that far off thunder... And just to be reminded of what that engine did for that car and how utterly... I mean, to me, that is what a true luxury, hedonistic um, engine should be like. I, I, I used to say to Uli Eichhorn, um, who was um, Bentley's chief engineer for a long time and did a huge amount of work on that engine, that really, if you're going to be really purist about it you wouldn't have a gearbox. You just have direct drive <laughs> to the rear axle because it would have so much torque. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those engines, I think it's got like a sort of thousand newton. I mean, it, it has as much torque as, you know, basically the limiting factor is trying to find a gearbox strong enough to take it. Mm. Um, and I used to, when I had them, I used to go on big cross-country journeys in them and see if I could do the entire journey without ever using more than 2,000 revs. Hmm. Yes, and that's the engine and, for it, isn't it? And, and you just could. And you could just go at great speed from place to place and never do more than 2,000 revs. You just, and, you just, and I just love locking it in a high gear and just leaving the torque to do the work. It just felt so effortless and because of that, mm. so wonderfully luxurious. Mm. And although, you know, the W12 um, that they've used until very recently, you know, hit all the right numbers, it was never close to being as characterful an engine as that no. nothing like a satisfactory um so yeah that's well, my that, that's i'm my glad big that's on your turbo. list i'm glad it's on your list because it demonstrates that a great engine or engines that we love are not just <clears throat> those banshees that held to nine thousand or that no that engine is all like done thunder that, and that engine it, is all washed up at four four yeah and it's not a performance engine no it's a it's it, but what it does do is it perfectly suits the car that it's in Exactly. And that's half the battle, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why, you know, a Ferrari V12 in an 812 Superfast is a simply unbelievable engine. Yeah. In a pure sangue, it's 
flawed, compromised. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. <clears throat> um, I want to give you a couple more um, and then we'll come back to you. So these are fantastic engines that are exceedingly affordable. Um, and one of them is the S54, naturally aspirated, 3.2 litre, inline six. In, in the, the E46. E46 BMW yeah. That's another one. I'll put a line through that one on my list. This, I mean, that's from the time where BMW M was really as much about engines as anything else. The engines were the heart and soul of those, of M cars from that era. Absolutely. Um, Hence the V10. That, yes. And... That, that inline six, um, it's so raspy, so zingy, it revs beautifully, um, really good power, but it's not, you know, some sort of horribly highly strung thing that you have to overwork. You know, it's still got 3.2 litres, so it still yeah. pulls quite well through the mid-range. Um, really peaky, zingy soundtrack, particularly in the CSL, where you've got a bit more power um, and a little bit and less weight. Ca- and the carbon fibre intake. Yes, Exactly. Um, but actually, my favourite installation of that engine ever was in the uh, the stunt cars, the Aston Martin DB5 stunt cars that they made for No Time to Die. Um, because oh, you drove one, didn't you? I did drive one, yeah. Because that, that thing weighs about 1,000 kilograms. They built a few of them. Um, but they weigh 1,000 kilograms. And you've got this wonderful, raspy, zingy engine with very little weight to work against. And it's so exciting. It goes like stink while sounding fantastic. Um, now, you can't exactly go out and buy one of those DB5 stunt cars, but you can have an M3 for probably 15 grand or something, I would have thought now. Yeah. Yeah. Long may it last. Long can may I, it last. I, and this, car, this engine isn't on my list, and I wouldn't actually have mentioned it if you hadn't started talking about that. But now that you have, I do want to mention, so I've got a, an M340i out mm. here. Um, and I just want to shout out the engine that's in that, which is still, you know, a three litre straight six BMW engine. It is turbocharged. And I just think it is, you know, that engine, which is, which has powered, you know, so many, everything from a sort of M135i up to, you know, M4s and M3s and that sort of thing. It is, and I know there are many different variants of it, but it is such a capable, characterful engine. And in this car I got here, this M340i, I've been working out, I've been trying to work out what is so good about it and why. And obviously, the fact it's a straight six and incredibly smooth is great, and it's got 300 and whatever it is, 50 horsepower, which is nice. But I think it's it's a slightly strange engine in that, you know, it's a it's a six-cylinder engine, which are increasingly rare these days in cars like that. Most people have highly turbocharged fours. It's got a very long stroke and a very narrow bore which is extremely unfashionable because that's not what you want for power but what it does do is it provides torque and it's also got a very high compression ratio uh, and it gets away with that because it's not blowing much boost so it's a very lightly turbocharged quite large capacity long stroke narrow bore engine and for a road car it just works stunningly well because you you know you drive that car and you might think it's a naturally aspirated four and a half liter engine um, because you are just not aware of it being turbocharged in any way, apart from the fact that it's so efficient, it seems to be doing 40 miles to the gallon everywhere. Um, so, yeah, so I just want to shout out that. And, and also, particularly in a modern context where everyone's going from, you know, six cylinders down to four and, 
you know, that sort of thing. Just having a, a straight six engine, not a V6 engine, um, but a lovely, smooth, straight six engine. It's, it's, it's increasingly rare and, and, and very lovely when you come across one. Yeah, fantastic. That is a, yeah, I've um, <clears throat> had that engine in uh, a long termer and we tuned it up to beyond 400 horsepower, I believe. Yeah. Um, and it's, even at that level, it's responsive. It doesn't feel boosty or laggy. Um, it charges around to the red line, loads of torque. It is, and it sounds great as well, doesn't it? It really does sound yeah. good. Um, so yeah, I totally agree with that call. Um, okay. I'm interested to know what you think about this one. And this is mostly because I drove, um, for the ver- first time a couple of months ago, a Series 1 Lotus Elise. Um, oh, okay. And what I adored about the engine in that car, and it's the Rover K Series, four-cylinder, yeah. um, what I love about it is that, I mean, a K Series is a, that went in a lot of boring cars. Oh, it's a mini Metro engine. It's true. It was designed for, well, the second generation Metro and, you know, all that sort of stuff, Rover 200s and so on. But stick a a very lumpy camshaft in it, um, tune it up, a free-flowing exhaust, and you get this quite aggressive, very rude, snarling, um, very powerful, very energetic little four-cylinder engine. Um, And particularly in something like the Elise, which is so light... And so raw, so stripped back, and the engine is just over your shoulder. It feels like a purpose-built, clean-sheet performance car engine. And I just love that this humble, humble Rover K-Series, you can tune it up and produce something really quite special with it. The thing about the K-Series was... It, it was I mean, it was, it was an absolutely extraordinary engine. And, you know, I think that term actually applies to all K-series, even the ones that end up in mini-metros. Because, again, it comes down to engineering. The way they engineer that engine, it's got these bolts that go all the way through the block, which makes it incredibly strong, um, which meant also that they could make it incredibly light. That's why it works so well in things like the Elise. It's a really, really light engine. And we had, and it must have been the most basic version you could get of it, which was a a single-cam, eight-valve engine in a 1.1S it was probably a rover metro then it was still mm. a metro um which i actually stuck through a hedge but anyway even in that car the humblest it probably had 60 horsepower it was a quality engine it yeah. was a real quality engine and the twin cam 16 valve engines that they put in things like the rover 214 this was when suddenly out of nowhere and because rover started to you know get platforms from honda and that sort of thing they, you know, after the disasters of all the, you know, the Leyland rubbish, which we can you know, ignore here, they suddenly started making some really good cars. And the K-Series was so much part of that. And it's, it's, it's almost a sort of like an XK engine, that it was so flexible. It could be mm. powered so many different sorts of cars. I remember they did a Metro record breaker, which they did 24 hours around Millbrook in. And it revved to 8,500 revs. It literally sat there at 8,500 revs going around Millbrook for 24 hours. And it was absolutely fine. Um, mm. And then you got these... You know, things like, you know, the engines that went into, God, you know, the, 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 what they call the VHPD engines, the very high-performance derivatives, um, with 200-odd horsepower and dry sumps and everything else. And they were absolute bonkers engines. Yeah, God. Um, you know, with probably three or more times the power um, of the base engine from which it, from which it was derived. Um, and I absolutely love that about them. Mm. That flexibility is Superb a Superb engine. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Go on. Let's have another one. Okay. Um, well, seeing as I, while we're on the subject of those sorts of engines, um, and this is going to be, I suppose, a somewhat controversial one because I think many people will say this is an absolutely rubbish engine. Um, but Ford designed an engine for the Anglia in the late <laughs> 1950s. Yes. Okay. Which was a one litre push rod four-cylinder engine developing i think when it came out 35 horsepower mm. well i've got one of those engines in my caterham except this one develop is is a 1.7 liter version of it um it develops 135 horsepower it breathes through twin 40 webers and for just character 
I, I just simply adore it. So this is the Ford, I mean, the Kent engine, they call it, the, but the Crossflow Ford engine. It didn't start life as being Crossflow, but it became Crossflow. And it has wonderful torque, the most amazing sound. And I defy anyone to be behind the wheel of something powered by a decent Crossflow and, you know, and not have a ridiculous grin on their face at the same time. Mm. It's a cracking engine. It's a single cam down on the block somewhere with push rods going off. I mean, you know, it's, it's all the things an engine shouldn't be. It's made out of iron. It's got push rods. It's, you know, it's overhead valve, not overhead cam. It's, it's, it's a piece of rubbish, mm. but it works. I remember we photographed that, your car up in the hills in Wales a little while ago. Yeah. And I was in one spot um, and it was a very misty day. I couldn't, the visibility wasn't that good. I was standing around waiting for you to come and I just heard this extraordinary noise that I thought was a low-flying helicopter. Yeah, I, I honestly would have bet money on that being a low-flying helicopter. And I was thinking, why is someone flying about in this? You can't see a thing. And then you just appear over a crest in your little catering. And I was like, oh, it's Andrew in his seven. It was, it was uh, an extraordinary Andrew sound. with his shitty cross-flow <laughs> yeah. Ford lump of iron stuck out the front. It was brilliant. Um, okay, I'm not going to dwell on that. Okay, I, I need to dwell a little bit on, on this next one because I think it is the engine design of which more engines have been produced than any other car in history in fact i'm pretty certain it is so the most popular engine there's ever been is it a v8 it is a v8 it's a small block chevy yeah yeah, yeah. all small block chevys how many have um, they built oh we need colin goodwin for that colin <laughs> if you're listening to this can you ring in let us know tell us um uh, who knows i mean hmm. god knows but bazillions of the bastards i mean yeah. just millions and millions and millions and you know this is an engine which came into being in the 1950s and you can still get them you know they mm. don't put them in any you know there are engines which call themselves small blocks but they're not derived from that original engine but you can still go and buy in a crate you can still go and buy a crate small block mm. um from from chevrolet and yeah, I, ju- I just love... It was the great democratising eng- engine. And, you know, in anything from pickup trucks to racing cars, you know, sedans, um, anything, the whole lot, they're, you know, powered by this f- fabulous engine, which was... I had one. Well, I used to race a Camaro. And it had one of these engines, as highly tuned as you'd get at the time. So I think we had about 440 horsepower out of it. It was a 5.7, as a lot of them are. Um, it, the engine had done when I bought the car the engine had done 35 races <laughs> I did two full seasons in it and we never put a spanner on it bloody hell yeah, mean, that's mighty isn't it absolutely mighty and to me it's also it's just the sound of America and, and sadly you don't hear it that often anymore but you go over there and you just hear you know, we all know the noise don't we mm. that low rumble mm. and it could be and the thing is you hear that noise and you have no idea what's going to come past because as I said, it could be, you know, anything from, you know, some knackered old pickup truck to, you know, some modern sports car. It could be a Corvette. It could be, it could be anything. Mm. Um, and I love but, that about it. I love that, that about it, that it's, 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 it's the engine that, I don't know, um, it just says America. All I love about American uh, motoring and cars and, and, and the way they go about building them is summed up for me in that engine. And the way they flooded off the production line. That's not a yeah. rare, exotic, unusual engine, is it? They were just <laughs> It is the opposite. Out. Yeah. It's the ultimate blue-collar engine. But, yeah. but it works. It does the job. Oh, it. fantastic. Um, so there are a couple that I'm hoping you're going to nominate, you're yet to come on to. Um, on. <clears throat> I've probably forgotten them. Well, I'll be amazed if you have. But one of them we did mention right at the start. Do we just need to tick off the BMW V12 in the McLaren F1? Just because I feel like this episode will not be complete if we don't at least acknowledge it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what was it? 30 years ago now. Yeah. Um, You know, when I was lucky enough to drive the same F1 that I'd tested for Autocar in 1994, I drove it again 25 years later. Um, you know, the car has aged in many ways, but that engine hasn't. Mm. That engine still hits you straight between the eyes every time you touch the throttle. 
it is an absolute it's a force of nature that engine mm. it's almost like you can't believe it was just d- designed by human beings <laughs> i mean paul russia bmw's paul russia the late yeah. paul russia was the man who uh who was behind it um it was you know quite unkindly described as two m3 engines stuck together and it wasn't um it was yeah i mean i can remember driving it and it, they said it didn't have a flywheel of course it did have a flywheel but it was it was so free spinning that if you turn it off the period of time between you literally switching off the ignition and the engine mm. was not measurable it would just go and just stop oh, just, just like you know, just out. like a sort of yeah just stuck yeah um oh, and yeah. and it was i can remember when back in 94 when we were doing that test once we'd sort of done everything we needed to do everybody in the office clearly wanted to come and have a ride in it and so we went down to the test track the long cross test track which you will mm. know of old down in Chobham, where there's a perimeter circuit um and they you know so they all queued up and you know i think i gave them like one lap each and what i'd do was i'd just um set off with them and i'd say right i'm gonna put my foot down now and i put my foot all the way down and they go god that's quite impressive and i said okay fine i got that was sixth i'm gonna do it in fifth now and then i do fourth and by the time i got to third they were screaming <laughs> it was and, and you could do that you could trickle away almost from rest in sixth gear. it was so well balanced the torque was, curve was so wide it was yeah i mean it at the time it was an engine unlike anything any of us had ever come across before and i think mm-hmm. it's still you know up there frankly with you know things like you know the lfa engine is absolutely you know i don't think we should nominate the world's greatest engine because how do you measure it yeah but yeah, if yeah. you were to go through that process it would absolutely have to be on there got to be there hasn't it <clears throat> i've never even sat in a mclaren f1 well not one that's moving anyway um so I, just time. I, I i need to i need to experience that motor um you so do. the other one that i hoped you would talk us through um is the colombo v12 yeah yeah i mean i didn't put it on there only because it just sort of it, i didn't want to be too obvious about it and it is yeah. such a so this was an engine which was designed by Giacchino Colombo for Ferrari in 1947, 1948. Um, mm. And it went into not quite all, but the vast majority of his road cars and his sports racing cars from then, um, you know, right up to, well, certainly the late 60s. Mm. And... There was actually, there was nothing particularly clever about it. And it goes back to what we were talking about, about the excellence of the engineering. There was no great groundbreaking technology on it. I mean, Ferrari very, very rarely did anything before anybody else. And okay, it was a V12, but, you know, people have been making v 12 since the, I don't know, the first one was about 1916. So there was nothing new about that. Um, the first one was a little one and a half litre V12, so tiny little cylinders, but it had... Single overhead camshaft, two valves per cylinder, very, very straightforward. It was just done beautifully. And they got immense amounts of power out of it. It was legendarily bomb-proof. You know, mm. they, you could do all sorts of terrible things to it, and it would just somehow put up with it. And one of the reasons that things like 250 GTOs were so unbelievably successful, because a GTO, like, like the engine that's in it, is technologically very, very conservative, is that not only were they, you know, they quick and gorgeous to drive, which, you know, which helped, um, they were just always there at the end as well. They just <laughs> hung around. They kept going, yeah. yeah they just kept going. And when you're doing those really, really long races like Le Mans or whatever, um, particularly back then when, you know, it was by no means guaranteed that, you know, even most of the field would get to the finish. You know, sometimes you get, you know, Le Mans would finish and, you know, you would have 55 cars start the race and seven would finish it. Um, but you knew that if you had a Colombo V12, you know, in front of you, sometimes even behind you, um, unless something very unexpected happen- happened, um, like someone binned it or whatever, or another part of the car break, you were going to finish the race. You didn't have to worry about it because it would just put up with whatever you could chuck at it. And and it is such a gorge. I think so many of these things, you know, we talk about, don't we? We talk about the McLaren and the LFA and, you know, and, and even things like that Rolls-Bentley engine. And, and so I reckon if you went back and analysed this podcast, we'd, we'd have spent half our time talking about the sounds that they make. 
Mm. That's the, and it's such a that's the key, part key component, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Of, you know, because we'd forgive an engine almost anything if it sounded like, mm. you know, the last thing you'd want to hear, you know, um, before you drop dead. And, 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 and the thing about that Colombo V12, it's why, you know, our forebears always used to talk about, you know, the symphony. Um, and we don't do it anymore because it's the most frightful cliche. But what they mean is it's just, it's not a single sound. Mm. You sort of feel that if you could actually just, instead of have to concentrate on your driving, just sit there and listen to it, you could unpick all the different noises that the, you know, the induction, the exhaust, the valves, the this, the that, the other. Um, and it is like an orchestra. It's, you know, because it's on so many different parts of the musical register and it's so complex and so fascinating and it's it's hypnotizing and mm. yeah that's that's the joy of it beautifully um, beautifully put beautifully put and actually on the <clears throat> on that uh, that point about the sound of a colombo v12 um i remember being at, <clears throat> at the goodwood revival one year stood on the bank at um the first corner um and you'd have this was the Ooh, you might have to tell me what race this was. Um, but there, there was a, a silver 250 GT short wheelbase with the yellow band over its nose. Yeah. Um, beautiful car. And so it's racing. Is that the TT or is that something else? Well, short wheelbase, it probably is the TT. Although, yeah, it probably, it probably is the TT. That's what they say yeah. most of the time. Okay. Yeah. So I think we're watching the TT. And, of course, you've got the Cobras going by with those thunderous V8s. You've got um, E-types with the, the inline six. Yeah. But the one that really sounded magical was the V12 in that Ferrari 250 GT short wheelbase. And when it would yeah. power away from that first corner, and the howl, the howl would just hit you. And it was yeah. like an old Formula One car. And it was the yeah. sweetest, best sounding thing in that whole race. Um, and I've, yeah, I've adored that engine in particular ever since. Fantastic thing. Any others? Uh, how are we doing? Well, I mean, I've got a few more. The Alpha V6. Yeah. Uh, another wonderfully, I mean, yeah, a couple of V6, actually, the Alpha and the um, the original Honda NSX V6. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, that was Very an good. engine which proved, you know, yeah, back in whenever it was, 1990. You know, compare that to the V8 Ferrari was making at the time. The Honda, mm. the v, Honda, you know, the Japanese V6 was better than the Italian V8 in basically every way that certainly mattered to me. It sounded better, better power delivery, sharper throttle response, revved higher. Um, it was just like the Japanese was just like Honda were going well pfft, you reckon that's cool try this yeah um, yeah fabulous engine um, I'm, sure, I mean, I'm sure there are so more um, I'm not going to get away with the flat 2 of my 2CV am I no absolutely not okay 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 okay, okay, okay. but okay the inline 2 in my Fiat 500 oh crikey my air cooled yeah. inline 2 in my Fiat was designed by Aurelio Lampredi yeah who also designed the four and a half litre V12 engine that was in the nose of Froyland Gonzalez's Ferrari 375 when he won the British Grand Prix in 1951, ending Alfa Romeo's stranglehold on motor racing. So there you go. That's cool. What a great okay. engine. You can have that. You can have that. <laughs> so, I th- yeah, I mean, I've got others on my list that I um, haven't even mentioned, but we'll leave those for now because I just want to end this on with one final thought. Um, so you, <clears throat> you suggested that perhaps if we had to declare one greatest engine of all time it would be the it's a 6.1 isn't it the v12 in the mclaren f1 the paul rocher 64 i think yeah um and but i don't want to do that i don't want to declare no no i don't think think there's any such thing but wait no we're not going to do that but what we what i do want to discuss is that the mclaren f1 now in a sense has a successor doesn't it in the gordon murray t50 yeah now we haven't driven that yet that car no. hopefully we will do soon um be lovely but the engine when you look at the specs do you think that might be the engine to displace the mclaren f1 v12 in your in your in your heart or in your mind it revs beyond 12 yeah i mean i think if anything's going to do it that well yeah because i mean i think the f1 engine any rev, rev to i say only i think it went to about seven 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 eight mm. So this is going to be completely and utterly different, but still a naturally aspirated 
um, V12. Gordon tells me that you, know, you think about an engine, it's quite a small engine producing that much power. And you think, well, God, I wonder if it's going to have any torque at all. Mm. I'm sure that it does. Mm. Um, you know, we know from hearing it go around Goodwood and from various onboards that we've seen, it sounds amazing. Um, so I think, yeah, as I say, I think if any car has the chance of doing that, then that car does. Um, haven't driven the Valkyrie, um, no. sadly. And that has another Cosworth designed V12, but a much larger one. I think it's six and a half litres, isn't it? Um, and that's yeah. pretty unbelievable too. Um, but I've not experienced it, so I, I can't say. But um, yeah, I, I, I would imagine, I would hope that if anything was going to do it, it would be that GMA engine. <clears throat> well, once we've driven it, we'll, we'll come and report back, won't we? Yeah. Um, so there we go. Those are our, our favourite ever internal combustion engines. Um, and if we've missed any, you'll have to get in touch. Um, and let us know because I think we've rattled through quite a lot there but that can't possibly be all of them can it Um, and I'd love to know which is your favourite engine so get in touch but just to wrap things up this week we've got a listener question from Andrew Belton Um, and he says a couple of weeks ago in relation to something else Andrew you mentioned Trigger's Broom Um, and Trigger's Mm. Broom as we know it had uh, four handles and six brushes or something um, yeah. But Trigger, this character from Only Fools and Horses, claimed it was still the same broom. The point being, um, yeah. if you change every single component about uh, is it still the same car? Is it still the same thing? Yeah. And so he says, um, Formula One drivers often talk about their car, but how much of the car that starts the year is the, is the still the same car that finishes the season, given the number of power units and everything that they're allowed to use? Um, and that's an interesting point, but particularly in Formula One, they don't even have a single chassis, do they? They work through several chassis. Mm. So, yeah. um, but it's, it's more sort of, <clears throat> when we talk about so-and-so's car or the car from such-and-such season, I mean, this is why multiple examples of the same car seem to pop up all, all over the place, isn't it? Well, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so, so the car, the identity of the car belongs to its tub, to its chassis. Um, and, you know, Formula One cars get stripped down to their barest components and then rebuilt. And, you know, I can't imagine that... OK, well, with the, the rules is you have to use the same engine, don't you, for a few races yeah. uh, and that sort of thing. But but, but yeah, the, the, the answer to the question is that the only thing that a car requires to be entitled to, the, to its identity is its tub. Mm. Um, everything it's the else backbone in the of the car, car isn't it? Um, will be will be changed. I, th- I think where the question becomes, if I may say, perhaps um, well, it's different and maybe more interesting is is when you've got historic vehicles. Mm. You know, so, so there was a very famous case. Of, <clears throat> there was a Bentley which won Le Mans in 1929 1930. It was the first car, first chassis to win the race twice. Um, it then got changed quite a bit. It then had an enormous accident at Brooklyn in 1932, killed its driver. Um, and it evolved and it evolved, got rebuilt and it evolved some more. Anyway, um, the long and the short of it, it got to a point where there wasn't a single piece on that car which crossed the line at Le Mans in 1930. Um, the car got sold um, and somebody, I think the new owner, believing it was that car, discovered that there was nothing on it from that original car, cried foul, and it came to court. Mm. And there was a big court case um, that tried to determine whether this car, this trigger's broom of a car, was still entitled to the identity of the original. And they decided, because it had this continuous history, um, there were <laughs> no question marks over what had happened to it, and it wasn't like you know one car went away and another one just turned up in its place, that it was entitled to that identity. Mm. So it can, it can still be called old number one because that's what it was called originally, um, even though there wasn't a grub screw left on it that was on the original number one. Um, so, I mean, I, th- I think that's the ultimate question, <laughs> uh, particularly these days where provenance and originality in old, the old car world is so unbelievably important. Um, and so many cars have, you know, have changed so much over time. But I think ultimately, if a car's history is known and there are no question marks over it, Regardless of what has happened to it, as long as it is documented, it is entitled to call itself what it was when it was built. Mm. Gosh, that is a very, very interesting case. I hadn't heard that one before. Yeah. Blimey. 
Okay. Um, all right. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your question. Keep them coming,、uh, and we'll do it again next week. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code Acast for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.